Sudan does have a little bit of oil, not not nothing to nothing to really concern ourselves with, but they do have rare earth elements. So we know China, we know Russia is going to be involved in this in this conflict, and it seems like more and more we're getting this. I wouldn't call it a cold war, but it's it's obviously a you know you know who the BRIC countries are yeah, yeah. okay it's you it's right now it's shaping into like this world dynamic of BRICS versus the West. Hey, we got Luke Burgess here with the Angel Research Podcast. I'm here today with Keith Cole. Keith Cole is the editor of Top Line Trader. Um, energy investor. Energy investor. Uh, technology opportunity. You also mm-hmm. write for Energy and Capital. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else? You write a lot. That's what I write. <laughs> so Keith, uh, today we're going to, we had, uh, today we're going to talk about several things, uh, but I want to start with uh, lithium. So. Talk to me about Chile and the lithium industry. Chile is nationalizing lithium. So the plan right now is for the Chilean president announced he was going to nationalize the lithium industry. Um, Just to give you a heads up, uh, Chile has the largest amount of lithium reserves on the planet at around 9.6 million tons. Um, They're the second largest producer just behind Australia, I think. And so they're kind of doing, um, they want to take advantage of, obviously, EV growth, uh, lithium battery growth. Um, I think the IEA just, uh, just uh, said it, uh, just reported that EV growth, sale, sales of EVs are expected to grow 35% this year. So in a way, it, it's kind of reminiscent of what happened to Venezuela. Um, but let me, let me clarify that. So you know what happened in Venezuela? Back in 2006, um, Hugo Chavez nationalized the oil industry and it was a complete disaster. It was terrible. It was absolutely disaster. But his goal or his, his reasons for doing so was because if you think back, this is before the shale boom. So oil prices were trading at triple digit prices. You know, it was running up to that 2008 peak around, you know, around $126 a barrel. Yeah. And so that was the initial, like, kind of catalyst as to why he wanted to take advantage of that because, you know, governments are greedy. And so with Chile, I think that they want to take advantage of this push for EVs and lithium batteries are going to be, the just the growth is supposed to be lithium demand growth between now and the foreseeable future. Go out to 2030, go out to 2050. Everybody's going to have their own strict bullshit targets that they're going to try and hit um everybody but this is not a good idea this is going to no no so up. so this could be a good idea because oh, could be. okay. so so it was reminiscent of, okay. of venezuela but in it, what happened in venezuela was a complete shit show yeah, yeah, yeah right it turned it turned the state-run oil company through incompetence and just sheer poor management into you know an irreversible decline in venezuelan production so Throw that out of your head. But the reasoning is the reasoning is sort of similar. They want the government wants to take advantage of the country's natural resources, right? And so it's not official yet, and they're still working their way through, but essentially they're going to create a state-controlled lithium company. Okay. And this company is going to hand have a hand in every single lithium project in the country. I think there's only two lithium producers right now in Chile. It's SQM and Albemarle. And so, I mean, two of the biggest lithium producers on the planet. So 
they're working with the companies um, to own about, probably own like a 50.01% share of all the projects just so that they can have control. Um, and this is not something that is unfamiliar to the Chilean government. They have nationalized the copper industry as well, correct? Right. Now that's, now that's going to be an interesting thing on how they implement this because um, if you remember back in 1971, they nationalized uh, the copper industry. Is it, is it called Coldeco? Codelco, Codelco. Yeah, right. So, so, that, so it's sort of a similar blueprint that they're kind of using right now. I see, I see. Right. So they are, I mean, they, 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 they're familiar with this. They know what they're doing. When do you think that they will do nationalize the industry? Is it near so term or? It's going to have to be near term. Um, because they want to I take think, advantage. I, th I think President Boric is going to essentially get it, get it run through. Um, he, wants those, he wants those tax dollars. He wants that revenue. He wants everything. Um, but it, it's definitely an interesting um, play for investors because for me, I don't look at Chile. I'm looking at Argentina. That's my next so question. Like all who's gonna, who's right, the winner? Formerly Oracobra would probably be my favorite play in South America. Um, but there was something interesting in, in the, the president's announcement of this. And so it's, he was talking a lot about new lithium te uh, extraction technology, right? So right now you get it through traditional hard rock mining. You get it through uh, these massive ponds of brine, um, which have their own issues because they take almost a year and a half to evaporate and get the metals out. And so he was talking about something about direct lithium extraction, DLE. Right, and only a handful of companies are even exploring this technology. Probably the biggest lithium companies, and a couple of juniors that me and you have never heard of. Um, and what's interesting about this is that they 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 can extract lithium from brines without the evaporation pool, like those massive ponds that that take a year and a half to to cultivate. And what's interesting is that this technology is completely untested. Right. There was a pilot plant, I think, maybe a year or two ago that was out, but it's never been commercially proven. So a lot of people are like, this would be where the U.S. would would probably come in. So let's say direct lithium extraction is a real thing. Then that opens a door for a ton of investments inside the U.S. As it is right now, um, let's let's assume it doesn't work out, then the U.S. is going to be in a lot of trouble. Because there's no way that we're going to even compete on a on a level uh, without like lithium brine extraction doesn't really work in the U.S. because of the climate, right? You need a very set sort of uh, very dry, right. ultra dry, right. yeah, over large areas, right? And so, um, so it's a lot more uh, restricted in the U.S., right? So you're not going to see as much growth if this doesn't get off the ground, and. By the way, now we're talking like what five, ten years in the in the future. Like this is going to be years away, and we need this now, not yeah. five, ten years in the future. Yeah, right. And what's kind of interesting is um, it makes us look at other stuff like lithium recycling, where a company like uh, Lifecycle is actually commercially producing lithium right now from all your old iPhones and electronics, and which is just something that everyone should probably take a look into. It's it's uh, it's been intriguing. Is that profitable for them? Is that something that they're just testing right now? Uh, it's it's currently uh, commercially okay. uh, viable. Oh, awesome! So they're growing. They have like these different like facilities, a couple facilities across the world. Um, 
So that's that's pretty much the situation in uh, in Chile. Okay, let's talk about Sudan. Now you've been talking about Sudan a lot in Energy and Capital, I think. Um, I actually haven't mentioned it yet. Okay, because this is this is this all happened me, like last week. Talking. So okay. we've been talking about yeah, this, yeah. but not but we haven't said anything uh, publicly. But um, so do you know the situation that's going on in Sudan? Not a clue. Not a clue. Not okay, a clue. so let's rewind. Right. Let's go back to 1989. Okay. Right. Al Bashir becomes the dictator of, uh, for lack of a better word, for Sudan. And since not, since the 80s, there's been a civil war going on, right? So we're talking like a 30-year civil war that sort of kind of played out by like, I think it was 2011 when um, South Sudan became an independent country from the Sudan. And so fast forward a little bit, you have this, you have Al Bashir ruling Sudan. And in 2019, there was a major popular uprising, right? And so he got overthrown by two of his generals. Now, what you have to know is that there's these two generals. There's one who's in charge of the Sudan's army, right? We'll call him General Burham, right? We'll just call him that. Is, is that his name? His name? <laughs> right. And then there's another general that is in charge of the RSF, which, are called, which is basically a rapid support force. Okay. okay. It's about 100,000 soldiers, so it's not an insignificant force. Okay. Right? So this is General Degala. Okay. okay. <laughs> so these two guys are very important, right? So these were the two generals that were under al-Bashir, and then these two guys got together, and they, over and they basically threw him out. Okay. Okay. So now 2019, overthrow, coup d'etat, these two generals find themselves in charge, each in charge of their own independent army. Right. That's a recipe for disaster. Right. I can already see it. So the US and the EU were all for the change because we like to meddle in, in other governments. And so to keep face, the uh, General Burham, Burham was basically the president in charge. Right. And they created this kind of transitional type government. Right. And it would consisted of the president, which was him, and his vice president, who was the General de Gallo. Right, these two dictators were now in charge, um, and then there was a civilian component. Okay, so each one of these guys wanted to basically be the top guy, right? And you and you each have it's really Game of Thrones ish, right? You each have your own armies, and so so fast forward to about you know a couple years, and these guys just can't get along, and they can't figure out how to run this country together, right? So General Burham has this idea, and he's like, well, let's, how about we fold the RSF, which is your army, into the, into the Sudan army, which is my army. So the one guy is obviously like, well, that's a pretty bad idea. <laughs> it's a terrible right. idea for him. And so they, they're going back and forth. And this is just over the last, and this is pretty recently, right, until last week, when just open war just started breaking out, right? That's when the U.S. Embassy was, was, was evacuated. Uh, other governments are getting their people out. It's just in Khartoum, which is the capital, is just, I would imagine it's utter chaos right now. And so you got to think of the geopolitical fallout or impact from this. Um, like, because Sudan is a huge country. Is it Africa's largest so it's country? So not, it's not, it's, I, I don't think it's the largest country. It's not the largest population-wise? No. But they do export almost $3 billion worth of gold every year. Okay. Which now is you're talking my language. Sure. Um, have you ever heard of the Wagner Force? I have not heard of the Wagner Force. In Russia? It's like a paramilitary force from Russia. And so Russia send, sends this group down to help in Sudan. Help. So now they're being accused of just stealing gold, basically. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, but I mean, maybe you can weigh in on on the gold situ- on the gold uh, situation there. So, anytime I'm looking for uh, gold stocks and I see that a company is working in Africa, to me that is actually an automatic red flag. Uh, just it's to- almost like oil in Nigeria. Yeah, it's it's a geopolitical risk that I don't have to take, so I don't I'm not going to. Sure, I mean Sudan does have a little bit of oil, not not nothing to nothing to really concern ourselves with, but they do have rare earth elements. So we know China, we know Russia is going to be involved in this in this conflict, and it seems like more and more we're getting this. I wouldn't call it a cold war, but it's it's obviously a. You know what you know who the BRIC countries are? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's you it's right now it's shaping into like this world dynamic of BRICS versus the West. We have Brazil, Russia, India, uh, China, and South Africa, I believe. So I think last couple of weeks there was an announcement that like nineteen company or nineteen countries are looking to join BRICS. Um and they're kind of fighting this this kind of war to undermine US economic superiority. Right, they've got. They convinced Brazil to drop the dollar uh, in change for exchange for I think for the yuan, or local currency maybe. Uh, Indonesia, just just recently announced that they were doing the same thing, um, and so all this is being fueled by, uh, the, the geopolitical chaos that's going on in in, in Ukraine. Um, so we're seeing like a. a, a an energy, a shift in, in in the global energy markets, right? So like you have obviously Europe that can no longer use Russian natural gas. So now they're overbuilding, they're actually overbuilding capacity for LNG, which is kind of funny because now they're being attacked by, by uh, groups that want to see cleaner energy or, you know, the kind of the failed green policies that got countries like Germany into the situation they're in right now. I think they just closed their last nuclear power plant like this month. Um, but um, so countries like Germany are like are, are planning on massively building out their, their natural gas and LNG infrastructure, right? And they're actually overbuilding capacity, which is actually a really good thing. If you think about it from like an economical standpoint, the more, the more supply you can get in there, the lower prices are going to come down to. And so what that's going to do in Germany is uh, it's going to force wind and solar and, and other renewable energy to compete with ultra cheap natural gas. And I'll let you know, it didn't work out well for that, for that here in the U.S. when natural gas basically caused the death of the coal industry. Yeah, yeah. So let me go back to Sudan for a minute. Sure. Um, I think that it's pretty clear... And and the, these BRIC con- countries who are waging war against the West, I think it's pretty clear why the money. Um, my question, I guess, is why now? Is it uh, is it because, like you said, Ukraine? Uh, are they just sort of piggybacking off? Well, of that whole like. Uh, well, imagine. Uh, I I can't say for how long, but Russia has always wanted to put a ba- a military base in the Red Sea, on the on the like a port on the Red Sea in the Sudan, and this is now suddenly possible. Um, so they're, everybody's playing their sides, but it seems like everybody's staying out, be, uh, like staying like from direct conflict. We're not going to send us soldiers in the Sudan after the complete shit show that we did in Afghanistan and, and the middle East, uh, over the last decade, couple decades. Um, but 
you're going to see this this BRICS faction start to gain a lot more traction in geopolitical uh, events. So like Russia getting a military base on the Red Sea is huge for them, obviously. And apparently the now that everybody hates Russia. So that would be that would be a major significant uh, event if they do that. China is currently trying to replace U.S. as the peace broker. Uh, they, they, I think Xi, Xi just announced he was going into Ukraine to try to broker a deal between them and Putin. So we'll see how that goes. But and meanwhile, the U.S. is just sitting on the sidelines. We're just sending tons, billions and billions of dollars and and military military equipment. But it seems like we're very lackluster in our in our ability to. Um, you know, broker peace or even to talk to the other sides. Uh, it seems like the uh, it seems like U.S. foreign policy has isolated ourselves from not only the BRICS countries, but the countries that are helping, uh, like are fueling BRICS's growth. So, like, com- or like countries like Saudi Arabia, right? Um, so it's it's kind of like a kind of like a bad secret, you know, like the worst kept secret is that Russian oil is not only selling for over the price cap, the G7 price cap is $60, but they're, they just basically took uh, the 20% of their oil that was going to Europe. They just shifted it to other markets like India and China, you know, right into, right into their hands. So while China and India are breaking, are, are buying up as much of this cheap Russian oil as they possibly could get, you also uh, take into account Saudi Arabia, which is, you know, second to the United States in, in terms of, of massive oil producing like country, right? So, <clears throat> excuse me. So it's interesting that we're isolating all these countries, especially Saudi Arabia. Um, the most recent stuff with Saudi Arabia is, is kind of interesting because the Saudis, you know, prior to 2008, we were hopelessly addicted to Saudi oil. Right, I think like half of our oil imports were coming straight from OPEC members. Wow! Right, and so over the over the course of this shale boom that we've had, which pushed U.S. oil production up to 13 million barrels per day, we uh, the Saudis kind of realized that we're no longer their their biggest customer. And you know, like every chance we get, if you take a look at say uh, some of the Biden administration uh, tweets and and moves against. Uh, the Saudis, uh, they blame them for high energy prices. They blame, they blame them for oil prices, high gas prices. Everything is somebody else's fault, right? Have you ever noticed that? Always, always. So, um, so yeah. So, uh, where was it? Biden. Okay. So, so Biden has all but is- uh, isolated us from Saudi Arabia. So, all that Saudi oil that was going to us, like, you know, 20, 15, 20 years ago, is now going to China, right? They have their new, so like, we have less leverage against uh, a lot of countries because of we because of a weakening position that we have in our in our energy policies. Um, also, in our monetary policies, one thing that um, we I wanted to talk about with you today is uh, something that I am paying attention to is China and Brazil starting to use their own currency and ditching the U.S. dollar. Now, for me, that means uh, higher gold prices and more interest in mining. What does that mean in the energy industry? Um, well, I think that's more of a red herring right now. I okay. don't think that I don't think you're going to replace the petrodollar. Okay. I don't uh, it's fair enough. I mean, yeah, yeah. 
if we're if we're doing this podcast in ten years, then perhaps that might change yeah, depending yeah. on how things go. But right now, there we have the most stable currency in the world. You know, I uh, very much agree. I don't think that the dollar is going to die. Like it's worrisome. Like don't get me wrong. Like you don't want a trend to turn into an actual correct like, yeah. catalyst. But you're right. The dollar is so strong that even if it takes this little hit, it can survive. Sure. I mean, what uh, I think the I think it's seventy percent of all foreign reserves are denominated in dollars. I think that's specific. yeah. So we get like that. Could we get the number up there to right. exactly well, the what it laptop. is? Eh, I don't want to look it up right now. But but the point is, we've been very aggressive yeah. toward toward foreign energy companies or foreign energy powerhouses like Saudi Arabia. Um, last year, while we were blaming the Saudis for for higher oil prices and for all this. For all of our problems, um, we released an historic 180 million barrels from the SPR, right? And there was kind of this handshake agreement with the Saudis that like, hey, we're going to release all this oil and we're going to try to save the day, but we're going to refill it next spring, right? And we're going to buy it from you. And so that's what prevented the Saudis last year from actually cutting production again. Because, I mean, they want higher, they want higher oil prices. If we suddenly flood the market, then they're just going to cut their oil production. They can beat us in the long run. Okay, and I'll get to that in just a second. But um, but right now, the about a month ago, the time was due to start refilling. Like we had, we oil prices had actually fallen between that that price range that Biden had set, and yet we didn't really do anything with it. And now oil's back up to eighty dollars, well above that price range, and so. Um, and I believe it was a, some energy advisor to, to buy and came out a couple of weeks ago or last month and essentially said, hey, let's, uh, let's, let's pump the brakes a little bit. We're not going to refill this SPR thing too quickly. And we can't really start probably for a little while. That must have been a slap in the face to Saudi Arabia, who just uh, assumed that they were going to do that. And so that's where the retaliation came from. And they just announced a surprise cut of a million barrels of like, 1.3 barrels per day. So they cut because we didn't buy the oil from them for retaliation. Right. I, 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 don't, I don't know if I blame them all that much, <laughs> to be honest with you. Right. And normally, if this were five years ago, I wouldn't have a problem with that because five years ago, U.S. oil, oil output was on, a, was on a, was climbing. It was on a really high trajectory. 13 million trajectory. barrels a day? Uh, 2019, just before COVID, like lockdowns hit us, it was at about 13 million barrels per day. Now that plummeted, right? And the idea was that within like, so the idea was that after COVID, right? After the lockdowns were over and the economy started going, and by the way, our economy is going a lot better than what, what I think what the headlines are, are saying, you know? So demand is higher, but over the last, say, two, three years, Oil production has has rebounded, but we are nowhere near um, the 13 million barrels per day. We're at 12.2. Will we get back? And to it actually trended thing? lower over the last couple like weeks. I oh, so it's going lower. Well, it's it was it was we we broke above 12, then it was about 12.3, 12.2. You know, we're right around there, but nobody is expecting us to get back to 13 million barrels per day unless people are just wishful thinkers, right? The CEO of, of Pioneer Natural Resources himself said, we're never going to get back to that 13 million barrel per day peak. 
And the reason is because the U.S. shale boom is over, right? It's done. We're in a different phase right now where it's more mature. It's not growth oriented. It's more, we're going to, we're going to make money on the barrels that we have. We're going to, we're going to do drilling. We're going to, we're going to do a lot, but it's not going to be at the frenzied pace that we're going to just take on enormous loads of debt like we did 10 years ago. You know, you have, you have a much more fiscally sound and disciplined oil sector in the U.S. now. And that's, that's a, a massive difference. And so while OPEC can cut in the past, we could have just been like, well, yeah, who gives a shit? Because U.S. oil production is just going to keep going up. Now we're in a position where U.S. oil production is not going to go higher. And so that's going to create a lot of problems. You're going to see them this summer when, I mean, right now we're seeing higher demand in, in oil, higher demand in gasoline, higher demand in diesel, right? And we're seeing we're, we're below the five-year average on inventories of oil, diesel, gasoline, right? So we're headed, not right now, but we're headed toward a very bad, a very bad payday, which is going to be uh, higher gas prices. If you, think, if you thought last summer was high, it's going to be interesting. Uh, it's going to be interesting what demand does. Now, I'm going to caveat all this and say that there's obviously a lingering catalyst that can just rain, rain on everybody's parade, um, and that would be a major recession, right? That's the only thing that's going to keep us from. That's only that a major recession right now is probably the only thing that's going to keep us from exorbitantly high energy prices this summer and heading into the back end of 2023. Okay, so big picture, <clears throat> geopolitics, supply, demand, all of this is <clears throat> pushing gold or pushing gold prices, pushing oil prices higher, and the only thing that can stop this is a recession. So we're kind of damned if we're But due. we're not seeing a recession. We're not seeing which a recession. Which is interesting. Yet. We're seeing a whole bunch of bank failures and a bank <clears throat> and a banking a full-blown banking crisis, and yet we're seeing uh U.S. GDP is still growing. We're seeing Chinese GDP growing at 2.2%, which is massively higher than the previous quarter. So like China is just starting to get underway. So it's not just about U.S. demand because you got to think, you know, about globally, right? So like China and India are going to drive oil demand higher over the next couple of years. Like there's no getting around that. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, what I'm getting at is this seems like a pretty big opportunity Sure, uh, sure. Like for investors, like with the, everything, we have all the factors that are going to drive oil prices higher. And if it doesn't happen, you're in a recession, right. which is just, that's. Well, I, I'm on the side that I think we're going to have a very, very good second half of 2023 for, for oil stocks. Um, for oil stocks specifically? Now, or particularly. That... I mean, yeah, I have my, I have my favorite homegrown Permian drillers Okay, that I'm, Almost never want to ditch them, right? But because right now they're in the mode that they're just churning out cash. Um, Diamondback Energy was profitable throughout the the pandemic, right? They were they were they never went negative, and so com- companies like that, I think we're going to see a lot more strength from refiners um, because they're going to be pumping out all that gasoline and diesel that we need. I think an underdog to take a look at will be Canadian oil. Um, I don't think uh, I don't think Canada gets its due, considering it's our largest source of oil, um, and it's got that crude oil, that heavy crude oil that the refineries in the Gulf just crave. 
Are we going to be talking about the oil sands again soon? I'm sure we will one of these days. <laughs> Over the next weeks and months, right, we're going to see, and you can mark my words, we're going to see a huge run toward M&A and activity, M&A activity. In that's actually what I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah that's exactly what it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, right now, Exxon is in talks of buying Pioneer Natural Resources, right? Pioneer Natural Resources is the largest operator in the Permian Basin. They're a massive independent oil company. And so you have company, you have big oil, like Exxon, Chevron, all these guys. They're always late to the party and they don't grow their business through the drill bit. They were late to the shale industry. They buy their inventories, right? And so I think that once this deal happens, right? And I'm pretty sure most people think it's going to happen. Personally, I think Exxon is better off buying more B-tier companies, something like Denbury Resources maybe. But um, it's interesting that if whatever deal goes through, there's going to be a massive buy from Exxon, right? That's going to, it, it's going to spark the, an M&A uh, spree. So you're focused on these B tier, uh, these like, I guess. No, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, um, instead of ponying up, you know, like a, a shit ton of money for Pioneer Natural Resources, I think they're better off going for better value down a little bit lower. They won't have to pay like the premium that would come with Pioneer Natural Resources. Gotcha. Although buying Pioneer would be an absolute statement by ExxonMobil um, in the Permian Basin. Um, and so what ki- what type of companies are you looking at for energy investor? Are you looking for those B-tier companies or? Um, well, we, um, we look at the independent operators that are smaller cap, uh, small mid cap. I don't really like buying big oil. Um, I'm not really huge on buying offshore. Um, Exxon just abandoned a billion, a multi-billion dollar project in Brazil. They just up and left, uh, for offshore Brazil development. So right now, if we're, if we're not talking Russian, Saudi Arabia and and OPEC, we're not talking OPEC plus the only growth outside of OPEC plus is going to be a little bit in the U S a little bit in Guyana. And then maybe, maybe a little bit in Canada and you, you got nothing else. So again, like what I was saying before, like um, how we don't have the growth that to take care of or to, to battle uh, Saudi cuts anymore. So it's going to get interesting for sure. It is going to get interesting. Keith, well, I want to thank you so much for being here today. Um, please come back again soon. I'm sure I'll see you in five months. Five months. Anyway, that's it. Take care, guys. Please be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Take it easy. See you next time.